And the, the, the way you know you got a quick get rich scheme is because the people are selling you the fantasy of the lifestyle that you think it's going to bring. And it's all about you wanting to spend on lifestyle. They'll show you the fancy cars, the fancy boats, the fancy this, the glitter and everything. And if you're if they're advertising that, that's probably a guaranteed quick get rich scheme. And the person that's going to get rich is the person selling that, <laughs> yeah. not you. Welcome to part two of this conversation with Dr. D. Martini. Part one, if you haven't listened to it already, I suggest you do. It has been awesome to dive deep with Dr. D. Martini. Oh, he's an amazing guy. This, it, I'm mind blowing, I'm mind popping. It's, uh, it's certainly been one of my favorite interviews so far in the Wealth Faculty. Uh, this is part two of the conversation with Dr. D. Martini. I hope you enjoy the rest of it. Maybe just. Uh grabbing a little bit of maybe one of those seven that you were talking about, the, the financial well-being of, of people, a lot of my uh, crowd listening in, uh, into creating a form of wealth through property investing, and they come from all walks of life. Um, you talk, obviously, you know, talking to millions and millions of people, hundreds of millions of people all over the world, the idea of a get-rich-quick scheme or, you know, not really understanding about wealth and money um, seems to be universal also um, across across the planet. Well, anytime you're living in alignment and congruent with your highest value, you increase the probability of achievement because you spontaneously are inspired to fulfill whatever that is. And when you fulfill it, you tend to want to fulfill something greater over a longer period of time that's greater in magnitude in space. So your space and time horizons expand when you're living aligned and congruent with what you value most. But when you're setting goals or fantasies, better said, yeah. that are not aligned to the highest values and they're more in line with what conformity expects and what society expects, which is something that is unfulfilling to the individual because they have a unique priorities in their own life, the unfulfillment will make them search for immediate gratification and they'll shrink their space and time horizons and search for immediate gratification. And immediate gratification costs them their life shortens their life, causes entropy. It causes them to speculate for a quick fix instead of long-term patient investing. They'll time the market instead of staying time in the market. Mm. You know, they'll want to flip the, the property and sell it and make a little profit instead of buying property and gradually using, you know, compound interest, uh, you know, escalation of property values and everything else in their favor to become forever wealthy. And so in the process of doing that, the immediate gratification is what makes people go for these impulses instead of these long-term inspired missions. Yeah. That's why planning with inspired mission, I, I teach a class called Master Planning for Life where I train people on how to think longer term so they increase the probability of having fulfillment. You know, some people liked or disliked Donald Trump, but I did, uh, I've known him for 28 years and I lived underneath him in Trump Tower and I got to interact with him and he's a character without a question, but he did teach me something very valuable. And he says, if you stay with something long enough, you'll build momentum and build a brand. But if you start, stop, start, stop, you won't build any momentum and no one will know what you do. And you'll work against yourself instead of for your dreams. So it pays to think long-term and it costs for immediate gratification. And people want a quick get rich scheme and they're vulnerable to that. And the, the, the way you know you got a quick get rich scheme is because the people are selling you the fantasy of the lifestyle that you think it's going to bring. And it's all about you wanting to spend on lifestyle. 
they'll show you the fancy cars, the fancy boats, the fancy this, the glitter and everything. And if you're if they're advertising that, that's probably a guaranteed quick get rich scheme. And the person that's going to get rich is the person selling that, <laughs> yeah. not you. But the person that is actually thinking long term is actually going to study the mathematics, the probability and learn about investments. And they're the ones that are going to end up with the money. You know, I, I, uh, I've been building my wealth for 38, going on 39 years. And I just incrementally kept refining long term, like Jim Collins says, overnight success is 25 years, just kept building it. And now with the acceleration of compound interest, the eighth one of the world that Einstein called it, um, now it makes me way more money than me even working. Yeah. And that's because of patience, long-term planning, structuring it and getting out of my way with an objective strategy. It's, um, it's, it brought up a question that I often ask many people who I talk to on the wealth faculty, they don't have to go to work for money anymore. Um, and, um, often I talk with people who can't comprehend that you wouldn't retire and stop and do something like golf and that's it. Could you talk to that for a moment? Because the answer often is something I love to hear. Why would you continue to work then? Well, I didn't go to work just to make money. Mm. I go to work to do what I love doing. Mm. I wanted to make a great fortune out of it. True. But I didn't do it because of it. I love teaching. I love writing. I do it every single day. If I didn't want to work right now, I could have millions of dollars coming in a year passive without doing anything a year for the rest of my existence and beyond. So I don't have to do it, but what else am I going to do? Because money without meaning yes. leads to debauchery and money with meaning leads to philanthropy. Yeah. So I would rather have a philanthropic objective that I keep expanding and keep working to get more income to go and do something philanthropic that gives you meaning that serves people without without serving people you don't feel fulfilled much much people like to think they can avoid that you might go out on a golf course for a few weeks but eventually that's going to be boring and you're going to start to decline in some of your faculties and you're going to is this all my existence for this that's not going to be it i, I i've met enough people that made money and then had nothing they had to do and i watched them deteriorate yeah i watched them drink their life away or screw their life away or who knows what, you know, as a, as their playboy, I, I joke about it, but I don't find that in any way inspiring. I'd much rather do something and say, I've got a mission. You know, I think Elon Musk, even if he's the wealthiest man in the world is going to go and do something extraordinary every day. Cause he's inspired by a mission Yes. And to me, every time you add a dollar to your wealth, you, let's say you have zero money and you add a dollar, the value of that dollar is 100%. If you have $10 saved, you add a dollar, it's now 10%. $100 save, 1%. $1,000 save, 0.1%. 10,000, 0.01%. $100,000, 0.001%. A million dollars, 0.0001%. A billion dollars, 0.00001%. So as you accumulate your wealth, the value of an additional dollar goes down. And if you don't have a cause accelerating up to counterbalance the devaluation of the dollar, you'll stop wanting to work. And then you'll fill your money, your money will go into buying clutter that depreciates. And it's a reflection of your own consciousness that's depreciating. So that's why I think you have a responsibility if you want to build wealth to consistently expand your cause, the legacy that you want to create, the philanthropy that you want to do. 
beyond just your own needs, beyond your family's needs, beyond your community needs, city, state, nation, what can you do on the planet that contribute to the planet and the world? Why not live a, le- live a legacy? Yes, love it. Talking about the planet, what, um, where are you at with part of maybe what you're doing then um, in that space? Like, is there something that's on your radar? Um, you know, I know Elon and many others around the world have got things going on. Part of what uh, we're doing at, uh, at our world is actually making sure every property that we have our clients invest in uh, has a carbon positive footprint, not carbon negative footprints. Um, that's an absolute must at our world. Is, is there something for you in there right now or what's what sort of? Well, I, I my area is human behavior. Yes. Maximizing human awareness and potential, helping people evolve their consciousness. So the problems that are like solving are in that area. Yes. Because I, I, if I get outside my core competence, I, I usually don't do as well. And my core competence is that area. Mm. So I like solving challenges that human beings face in their day-to-day life and contribute to that globally. Yes. I also had a dream because I had studied all the Nobel Prize winners. I studied their Nobel Prize speech, their actual writings, you know, what they got the Nobel Prize for, great philosophers. And I always thought, wow, they've contributed to my life so much. I'd like to create a competitive prize. So I created the Martini Prize and I've been building up wealth for that. That gives me, I've got lots of projects, but that's one of them. It's got about 30 million now in it and I'm I'm still building into it to be able to contribute a prize that outprizes the Nobel Prize and the Templeton Prize. So that's something that I'll initiate as I get closer to my age, you know, yep. and I, and I, that was a goal. So that gave me some more reasons to go and to work and serve because that's a goal I could leave. It's a, a legacy I'd leave, but there's also things on foundations that I want to do. There's things I, I, I love doing. Education is big, important to me. Yeah. So I find the things that inspire me that I feel that I can contribute to challenges in the world. And I search for problems that I can help. And then I work at helping those in one way or the other by information or economic systems or something. Powerful, inspirational. You mentioned values before, and I just, I did have one question in the back of my mind. Can you change them? Like, is it like, oh, I'm gonna choose another one. Is, it, is there sort of the, a foundational set of values or, or is it something you can- No, your values are evolving. They evolve by gradual, there's two hypotheses. One is a gradual hypothesis. That's it's slow tweaking through time. And the other one is a cataclysmic punctate hypothesis, usually from major events. Yes. So COVID can make a major change in values, a baby born, a baby dying, a, a divorce, any pretty significant change in distress in somebody could change a value. Mm. But you can stack up new associations in the brain and advantages over disadvantages and raise something up or disadvantages over advantages and lower something down on your value structure And you will then, by doing that, and I train people on how to do that in the breakthrough experience, to shift values. Because you're only going to have fulfillment if you set goals or objectives that are truly aligned to your highest values, or you align your highest values and rearrange them to match the goals you say you want. Yeah. If I I have somebody... Could you talk to that for a moment in and around, let's say, let's say financial freedom, just because a lot of my, my listeners would probably enjoy that conversation. Okay, Okay, so let me just wake this up. I was speaking in South Africa in 2013 at a success summit with Richard Branson. And we 
uh, I asked, I opened it, he closed the conference. And I opened it up and there's about 5,000 people. And I, I said, how many of you want to be financially independent? All the hands and legs went up. <laughs> legs too. <laughs> and I said, great. Now, how many of you are financially independent? Your passive income exceeds your active income. You don't have to work anymore. You work because you love to. And all the hands went down. Seven hands out of 5,000 were left up. And these were entrepreneurs and business people. And I said, all right, have you ever wondered why 99 to 100% of you have your hands up? You want to be financially independent, but less than 1% achieve it? Can I tell you why? Yes. The hierarchy of your values. And so if you have a hierarchy of values, because the hierarchy of your values dictates your financial destiny, determines every perception, decision, and action you take. And if you have a higher value on buying consumables with immediate gratification that depreciate in value when you buy them, like a fancy car, like a fancy house that you live in, not rent, then uh, you're going to go and buy things that go down in value that erode cash. But if you have a higher value on buying assets that appreciate in value, you're one of the small percentage of people that are going towards financial independence. If you value you, you're going to put your money into things that go up in value. If you devalue you, you're going to put things that go down in value and buy other things of other people's brands, consumable items that are overpriced to make you feel temporarily better about yourself because you're devaluing yourself. So your hierarchy of values will dictate your financial destiny. And believe it or not, I've taken thousands of people through the value determination. And 1% or less actually have wealth building in the top four. Mm. So when you're dealing with those that say it, you'll see it by their actions. If they're not doing it and they're not following instructions, it's not their, it's not their values. They just fantasy. It's a fantasies. Yeah. So the first thing you do is you got to stack up. You take the action steps that are proven to work in the financial wealth building arena, you know, automated savings, automated investments, structured systems. You know, there's certain things that if you do this, you get wealthy. And if you, if you do take those actions that are proven to work and stack up, what is the advantage of taking these actions and stack up advantage over advantage and keep listing advantage? You neuroplastically will remyelinate your brain once the number of advantages outweigh the disadvantages that you've accumulated throughout your life from people that don't have wealth surrounding you. Yes. And then you stack up and find out what's currently your highest value, your children, travel, whatever it is, and ask how specifically is building wealth going to help me fulfill what's deeply meaningful that I spontaneously do every day. And once those are linked in the brain and they're stacked up more advantage and disadvantage, you make decisions that are different. And I've trained people and I, I get paid to revamp the values of people so they can finally get wealthy in their life because they've not been able to. They keep having something rescued. They, they've got a higher value on their family or their, their social friends. And so if there's an emergency there, they rescue them and they give away their money. Or they go in, they, they, they think, well, I'm going to do it. And then they go buy Jimmy Shoe shoes because they want to look good. But as long as they don't have a value on buying assets that accumulate long term, how are they going to become wealthy financially? Not going to happen. They'll be wealthy, but not financially wealthy. Yeah. They'll be wealthy with social context, wealthy with nice clothes, but they won't be financially wealthy. And there's a difference. Yeah, powerful difference. It's wonderful. The idea you said before, time in rather timing and like the longer term approach to all of this, restacking your values, linking it to something powerful that would motivate you just 
I had a gentleman. <laughs> I had a gentleman thirty uh, four years ago, two thousand seven. I mean, nineteen eighty seven. Pardon me. Uh, two thirty four years ago, he saw what I was doing with my automated investments. It was electronically done. It was automated. It was increased ten percent every quarter. It was a force accelerated saving and investment structure. And I kept buying at the time, low cost index funds, S&P 500 equivalents. And I just kept buying, keep the cost down, just keep buying. I never sold them. I've never even sold those things in 38 years. And at first they say, oh, this is like a turtle. It's gonna take you forever. You're never gonna get wealthy. And I watched them go out to the big kill and then something fall down, it didn't work. Then they go out to the next kill and then, and they're constantly going after the big kills to try to get rich, you know, big the big hits instead of just a methodical, accelerated, increasing amount. And I'm the one that got the the lifestyle that they dreamed about. I'm the one that got the the wealth that they dreamed about because I was patient. Yeah. If uh, if listeners are listening in about this values uh, rearrangement or uh, improvement, they could, uh, I'm assuming. Um, do some of this online or, or, or certainly at the breakthrough experience, you would be teaching a bit of this stuff too, which I think would be for some people, if they're listening in and go, ah, that, that sounds like me. Yes. Yeah. Breakthrough experiences you. Yeah. The, 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 the value determination on my website, drdmartini.com is worth the time spent. I promise yeah. it's free. It's, it's about a 30 minutes of your time. It's informative. It's private. No one will see it except you take the time, drdmartin.com, go on that and do that website. Find, determine your values on there and just go through a little process and take a look at where wealth is on your value list. Yes. It might shock you. It might, might uh, shock you. You wonder why you can't seem to get ahead. You'll wonder why you can't seem to, now you'll know why. I think uh, just in the back of my mind, I think we might uh, get all of our clients to do that every time they join. It'd be a great way for them to sort of start at the right base. And, and then as as they're being trained and as they've learned about the value, they can go back and look again. Yes. My daughter did not have a value on wealth building. And we, we had a conversation. I asked her, how does she want to live her life? And she started writing down the things she'd like to accomplish. And I said, what type of wealth do you think it's going to take to live that life? And we calculated it out and it was... At the time she was young, she couldn't really comprehend what that meant. And when she finally saw what it's gonna take and I said, are you on track for that? She goes, no. I said, what's your intention then? How are you gonna get there? Because it's easy to fantasize, but it actually takes the work to do it. Mm. And she started on a little savings program and she's now 16 times the amount. It's multiplied times 16. And she keeps increasing it like I did. And I'm showing her how to do it. She's on her way to being very wealthy, multimillionaires. And it's it's because of a slow, incremental, methodical accumulation of assets. If a person buys a property, they build up a little equity, and they get some of that money, and they time it with the right cycles, and they keep the cash reserved, and they do it again, and they do it again, sooner or later, they start having substantial, gradual, increasing amounts of money coming in passively. And all of a sudden, they go... That didn't really take that long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's um, it's wonderful to hear you resonate the same sort of messages, you know, for uh, that are universal often in this space, which 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 we often overlook. I think 
like you said, it's that part well, where this, each of those values aren't lined up. This isn't new. <laughs> no. <laughs> this isn't new. I can show you quotes from Aristotle 2,350 years ago mentioning the same thing. It's nothing new. That's powerful. Thales. Thales was one of the great investors, 700 BC. Seventh century, 600 BC. He was one of the great investors. He cornered the olive oil market and bought things consistently until he had majority shareholders of some of the oil, olive oil. And then when the market crashed, he bought more and leveraged it and became, he was like the, the little Buffett at the time. <laughs> like you said, it's not new. And, and um, many of these things, it's kind of like remembering rather than discovering. It's it's uh, it's it's something that's been around for eons. Well, Plato said it's uh, learning is recollection. Uh huh. And there's and there's, there's uh, a lot of wisdom gets passed down generation after generation. People forget where how long this has been around, and we eventually are wise enough to to discern and learn it, or we somehow miss it. And if we do learn it, it gives us an advantage. And if we don't, well, we are disadvantaged in life, not because of anything other than our own unwillingness to pursue what's true. Yeah. One of the big subjects you talk about often, and I remember it at uh, the breakthrough event, is about grief, about about grief, about dying. Your your wife passed away, um, and uh, um, you know many people have that experience of a loved one passing is something that is almost unfathomable. Um, and you talk about sort of putting that in context powerfully. Um, could you speak to that a little bit, um, maybe a little bit selfishly for me for the moment, my dad is quite unwell and he's kind of, you know, very close to passing and, and uh, maybe others listening in over this year have had family members pass through COVID and other bits and pieces. Maybe just sort of shed some light on, on you know, maybe a big one there. Okay. When Donald Trump, uh, struck Soleimani, the general in um, the hero of Iran. Five million people came out and mourned his death in Iran because he was a hero there. But in America, he was labeled a terrorist and he was a villain. So there was no mourning in America, there was celebration. So that's an interesting thing that I've observed for, for a long time. And since so what happens is we only perceive the loss of that which we infatuate with and have impulses towards, which creates an oxytocin bonding, a vasopressin, encephalons, you know, serotonin, dopamine. Whenever we have things associated with those compounds and all of a sudden we have a perception of loss of it, we have the withdrawal symptoms from those compounds. We call that grief. And if we resent something and it's taken away from us, we have relief. But if we have something we resent and it comes near us, we have grief. And if we have something we infatuate with and it comes near us, we have relief. So if we are, we're searching for an animal to eat, which we infatuate with and want to consume, if we capture it and it comes near us, we have relief. If it gets away from us, we have grief. Mm. And if a predator comes near us, we have grief. But if it runs away, we have relief. So grief and relief are two poles of a magnet the perception of loss of that which we seek and the perception of gain of that which we try to avoid is a source of grief. And the perception of gain of that which we 
uh, infatuate or seek. And the, uh, the perception of loss of that which we're trying to avoid is also now relief. And this is easy to prove. I mean, I've, I've proven this in, under scientific evaluations, et cetera, in Keele University in Japan. So grief has nothing to do with somebody dying, nothing. It's an animal response to the perception of loss of the parts of the person that we were infatuated with or the fantasies of what we thought we were going to do with them. Mm. Because when you ask somebody, and I've asked 4,000 people who've had deaths, I've done it week after week after week in the breakthrough experience. I've been doing it since 1984. And I've got a new book that I've just, uh, just about finished on it and that I've written. And if you go and ask somebody, okay, so you're grieving or lost? Yes. What specific trait, action, or inaction did you perceive this individual displaying or demonstrating that you admired most, that you now miss most? And they never miss their growling crouchiness. They never miss their yelling. They never miss their anger. They never miss their smells. They never miss their dirty socks. They never miss anything that challenged their values. The list is always one-sided things that gave dopamine fixes and gave pleasure to them because they are perceiving that those parts they're now missing. Mm. And if you look very carefully, when we itemize those parts, they see that they go, oh, that's interesting. I didn't even read. I thought I was missing all of them. No, you're missing the parts that you admired and the fantasies that you created about what you were going to do with the future. you now can't complete, but you're not missing the parts when they would yell at you, they would maybe terrible lovers, or they didn't uh, come home at night, or they would drink, or they would, you know, you didn't miss that. You never missed the parts that you despised. So grief is finally coming to terms that you were actually blocked in your love for them, and you were infatuated with a fantasy and resenting over some of the nightmares of their life and haven't integrated those into true love. And it's giving you a chance to do it. So when my wife passed, because I understood that, and I also had, I found out in October, she had cancer and she died in December. So we had two months to go through the process, which I call the Demartini method, to go through and itemize every single thing that I admired about her and balance it out and find out who emerges the moment she passes, who emerges with those behaviors. They got conservation of information. And when I point this out to people, at first they're going, what? And they don't know, it can't be. But I've been doing this since 1984 on 4,000 cases and it works. So I can show people that nothing's missing. It's just changed forms. And your attachment to the old form is what's making you grieve. And if you found, find the downside of that form and become conscious of the, the things you were unconscious of, and balance the equation and love them for both sides, the grief is gone. And if you see the benefits of the new form and balance out, the grief's not there. So I can take people through the grief process. I just had a death today. One of my close friends is one of my facilitators. Mother just died of COVID today. And we just found out about it about two hours ago. And so we're on the process. When I get off this uh, interview, I'll be contacting her and we'll be doing that process. And she knows the process, but I'm there to support her in the process because I knew the mom. And we'll work through the process so she can be functional. When people die, I've never met anybody that can look me straight in the eye 
and say, when I die, I want you to be grieving and mourning. Never seen it. What I find is people want their children to live their life to the fullest and be fulfilled and fulfill their dreams. I certainly, when I pass, I don't want my kids to be mourning. I want them to, you know, go and fulfill their life and remember that that was my mission to help them fulfill their life. That was it. Yeah. I don't want them to go, oh my God, and then see them sad in their because of their of fantasies about me and the and all that. Those are all those are all imminent-minded animal behavioral responses instead of true transcendental love for somebody. I'm interested in helping people get to a transcendental love so they can feel the presence of the person regardless of their alive or dead. Powerful. You've you've written for years gratitudes daily. Is there is there some magic in that part? You know, weaved into these things as well, like you know, uh, positive affirmations, gratitudes. What's the difference? Well, gratitudes are the true gratitude is not when something supports your values. True gratitude is when you see both sides of something and see the hidden order in it. You see it with grace. And I document. I have the largest collection of documents of those grace experiences of anybody I've ever met on Earth. I have 30 volumes of 10-point, one-inch margined compilations of gratitudes on a daily basis. This interview is already documented. It's already in there. I had Marcus in there because I thought that he was going to be doing it because he's the one that contacted, but now I'm going to put your name in there also, Jason. So in the process of doing that, I document everything because I found that if I metric what I'm grateful for, I receive more to be grateful for. And I use it as a metric to the goals that I set to see if I'm truly integral to pursuing what I say I'm going to pursue. And if I get results and I document the results, it's a confirmation that I'm authentic to my mission. And it's also inspiring because I get to meet amazing people, get to go to amazing places, get to do amazing things weekly, daily. What a great year I had today is one of my mottos. Because what some people get to do in a year, I get to do in a day sometimes. So, yeah, I'm a firm believer that gratitude is the key that opens up the gateway of the heart. Inside the heart, I like to think of metaphorically as love. Love comes radiating out and window washing to mind and bringing inspiration to mind and enthusiasm to the body. makes you more certain about your objectives and more present in the pursuit. What a wonderful visual. uh, You've learned so many things in your amazing life so far on the planet. What, what's your uh, voids or curiosities right now? What's, what's, uh, what's exciting you or what are you sort of going after to learn or get more of a handle on right now? Well, in uh, December, I finished, well, November actually, I finished a textbook on the sun and on nuclear physics. So I think I devoured pretty well anything and everything on that topic. I think 1200 uh, books on that. And uh, then I now right now I'm working on two books, one on grief, which is almost done. And um, which is my methodology on that. And then uh, another one, I'm philosophers of the world, which I'm about 440 pages into this book that I've been writing. And what I'm doing is I'm going through hundreds of philosophers and the highlights of their contribution to thinking, just so I can present that to my students who are interested in that, because 
there's a thing called syncretism. And syncretism is the gradual integration of knowledge over time in various schools of thought in philosophy, theology, science, in any field really. And by going through this text, I will show the students you, that you're standing on the shoulders one after another of great minds. And it's and what we know today is really a culmination of bits and pieces that have been accumulating for the centuries. And I want them to see that so they're a little bit more patient and, and see how, you know, filling their minds with great ideas and then creating another cutting edge frontier for it. Because no matter what you know, there's always something of unknown greater outside that. That's why Socrates, they consider him the wisest man, but at the same time, he said, I know nothing. And the reason he said, I know nothing, is because he realized he had subjective biases and all things he could perceive with his senses, which were elusive. And he knew that the amount he knew was an infinitesimal compared to the infinite possibilities of what he didn't know. So he humbly stated that jokingly, but people thought he was the wisest individual because he kept saying that I was, I was uh, unwise, you know, he said he was unwise. So this, uh, this is a great pursuit that I, I would like to continue to pursue. So I'm, I'm studying every single day. I mean, there's not a day I, that goes by without me researching and learning something, yeah. something on neurology. I have, I have 19 specialists around the world in different fields, astrophysics, uh, exobiology and medicine and health, physiology, chemistry, some things in mathematics that are great minds out there, the leading minds that they send me anything that's cutting edge, they just send it to my email and so I devour the abstracts and try to keep up that way. The, the podcast is called The Wealth Faculty and we've got a sort of bit of a play on words that your personal faculties, you know, your, your, your wellness, your mind, your, your health, your happiness. Uh, and on the other side, the you know the faculty members that you love and respect, and you, you draw on, and I'm sort of thinking of this question in my head to ask you, but I'm, I'm saying, is there is there any like you know a handful, five or ten, or is it, or are there just hundreds of thousands of faculty members in your life that you you've drawn so much from? Is is there a top five for you? I don't think I could really say that. I. I mean, there are people that had a major catalytic effect on my life. Yeah. But when it comes to learning, you know, when you go through 30,000 books, 30,500 30, books, you go through a lot of those. Yes. So I, I can't say there's one that stand out. But I will say that Mortimer Adler, who is really the editor of Syntopic and Volumes 1 and 2, which I recommend as the two beginning books to study as a foundation of mastering life, I believe that he did a magnificent job of summarizing some of the great minds ideas. Like that's why they call them the great ideas. Yeah. But I, I wouldn't say that that he and himself by itself, he's just a great editor, but, but standing on the shoulders of, of giants have been what I dreamed about doing since I was young, since I was 18, 17. Many giants, many giants. And, and yeah, there's thousands. There, there's not one or not a handful. There's thousands. Yeah. Yeah. You give me a, a particular field, I might say one or two or three or four or 10 or something, but, but, but just overall, my people say, well, you have a little Buddhist in you and you have a stoic in you and you have a, an Indian mystic in you. And I go all the above, yeah. but I don't, I don't follow one thing. I'm not a subordinate to any one school of thought. I'm an amalgamate, you know, syncretic, uh, eclectic individual that puts these things together and tries to build on top of them. 
Love it. I've got some random questions for you. They're not uh, too hard, but, uh, you know, how many hours do you sleep each night? Uh, you know, are you a long sleeper, short sleeper, cram it all in? There's not much time left in my life. I want to read every book on I've ever seen. Well, from age 18, well, for 35 years, I slept four hours a day. Four hours. Um, when I hit around... 60. I noticed that I was having to get up middle of the night and sometimes uh, relieve my bladder a little bit more than normal. And I, I know quite a few 60 year olds that say, well, that same thing's happened to them. And uh, in fact, I have a funny thing. I don't know if this is appropriate to say on this, but I, it's quite funny. Go for it. I, I, I was uh, doing a presentation in Houston, Texas, where I am now. And uh, we took a break because I really take a break, as you know. And uh, we took a break to relieve people's bladders. And I walked down to the, to the restroom with two other guys about my age, long-term students been with me for over 35, 40 years of them. And we're standing there at uh, the men's, you know, bathroom and we're relieving our bladders. If you can picture this <laughs> and it's a little slower than it once was. And we're standing there kind of chuckling about it. And um, all of a sudden, a 20-year-old comes in there, and he comes in there, and just, it was a fire hydrant. <laughs> and then and, and he, he walked off. And another guy came in there, and another fire hydrant came in, young kid, and walks off. And we're still standing there. And it was quite hilarious, because we just started chuckling, and all we looked at each other and go, do you remember those days? <laughs> <laughs> so, so because of that, and because I sometimes get up in the middle of the night, sometimes twice or three times, I, um, my sleeping pattern has extended. And so it's closer to the five and a half, six mark now, because sometimes I'll lose 20 minutes each time I do that, uh, of really good, you know, deep sleep. So I'm now sleeping more like the six hour mark now. I, I try to schedule that so I have that at least. Some nights I don't have that because I've got a busy schedule, but that's typical. But I did four and a half, four, four and a half, for all those years. I mean, I, that was like clockwork. And I didn't seem to have any curtailing about it. People say, well, that's going to cause problems in your body over time. Possibly will. I may have circadian things thrown off. I may have, you know, brain congestion from it. But so far, going on 67, I, I, I'm doing okay so far. Pretty good. Have you, uh, did you subscribe to, you know, um, a certain style of eating, vegetarian, et cetera, et cetera, over the years? What's your nutrition process like for, for this type of, you know, uh, engagement? Well, uh, this morning I had some fresh grapes. I had some plain Siggy's yogurt, which is a plain real whole milk yogurt and some, I think 16 grain multi-grain bread. So that was my breakfast this morning and some, a bit of carrot juice. And then this afternoon I had, um, a multi-grain bagel with turkey, tomato, avocado, um, a little bit of just a tiny bit of cheese on it, and a um, some more carrot juice, and some nuts, mixed nuts. And tonight, I had some salmon, some broccolini, and some parsnips, and a little slice of bread, toast, multigrain toast. And I drink water during the day. And that's kind of the type of meal I'll have. Sometimes I'll have soup. In, in Australia, there's a, 
place in Melbourne that makes me a special soup there that's a chicken and vegetable soup. And then South Africa, they have the same thing for me. They call it Demartini soup. They sell it in hotels actually. <laughs> and um, so I love that with some multigrain breads. And, um, but I eat multiple fresh fruit, you know, a variety of fruits, yogurt and grains in the morning. I have soup or salad or a sandwich at lunch and usually salmon or some sort of a things. And occasionally I'll have some sushi. Not really a participant in any of the fads or anything like that. That's, you know, just a, a really nice. I'm more of a Mediterranean. Process. I'm more of a Mediterranean diet than anything. Yeah. I don't, I don't follow. I don't go for fads. I don't, I I'm pretty consistent. You can rely on me to eat. I don't live to eat. Yeah. I eat to live. I, I, I keep my day so full of meaningful objectives that I want to make sure my performance is able to fulfill those meaningful objectives daily. So I live just, eat just exactly the right amount to make sure I don't overeat or undereat to maximize the performance through the day. What uh, what books are you reading at the moment? Is there something uh, other than the, the sun work or the... Well, I'm reading one on cosmology and I'm reading one on physiology right now. It's just sitting right behind me. There's two of them. And I'll... I, I'm, I, I'm not reading them long term. I'm, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm reading just a few pages here and there whenever I want to get an eye break from the camera, the thing. But most of my research is online today. Yes. Most of the research is online. Okay. It's much more efficient. So I devour in a day online hundreds of articles sometimes and or read, old books or old text. Video, like still reading as well? That's the uh, Much of it's reading. Sometimes yeah. I'll watch videos. Now, today we had the Mars landing. And because I was involved in that um, for exobiology, I was studying that in 87 for special missions to go to Mars to go find out if there's life there. That's what I was working on. It meant a lot to me because they made it today. I got tears in my eyes. I was so inspired to see that they made it. They made it there with robotics. We didn't have that capacity quite as easily back in the 80s. So I watched that. I, I, I've devoured pretty well everything that's about that perseverance, how they put the perseverance together, um, the trajectories, the mathematics, the physics of that. I, I researched that because I've been fascinated by, you know, astrophysics, mathematics, um, physics, chemistry, biology, physiology, microbiology. I mean, I've, I've studied them all. So they're all very powerful to me. The, the universe is so mind-bogglingly large. Like that, like this, how, how do you, sometimes it's overwhelming. It's, you know, how do you, like, do you ever think like that? Like we are so infinitesimally small, what, what's the point? You know, like it just. Well, if we, if we compare ourselves to the universe, we're an infinitesimal and we have, you know, no influence. Yeah. If we compare ourselves to the subatomic world of Planck, we become very significant. And the, 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 the macro takes you to study Planck and Planck takes you to the macro because according to the pre-inflationary Big Bang model, the inflationary construct of the Big Bang started at Planck's dimension. So the universe was supposedly spaceless and timeless Planck. So these are constructs that, that are inseparable, the macro and the micro, and they're really inseparable except in the mind. The mind is what divides those two. Yeah. The mind makes big and small. It's all a mind game. So if we go in there, when you really study the disciplines, 
all the disciplines, and I made a list of those 299 different disciplines, all they are is studying the same laws at different wavelengths. So if you go down to Planck's wavelength, 1.6 times 10 to the negative 33rd centimeters, if you go down there, uh, you're going to have a wavelength and go into the subatomic quantum Planck dimension. Anything smaller than that is transplankian. So we don't even have a math for that at this stage. We've got theoretical math, that's all. And then as you go up, you eventually get into what is called uh, subnuclear physics. And then you go into nuclear physics. Then you go to atomic physics, right? And then you go from atomic into finally atoms, the atomic physics. Then you end up going into chemistry, inorganics, and then you go into organics. And then you get into molecular biology. And each one is a slightly larger wavelength of study, but the principles and laws that govern each wavelength are the same. So if you understand those laws, you can see different languages describing the same laws, the law of similars and differences, the laws of one and many, the laws of expansion, contraction, all, all these same laws occur. And once you understand those fundamental laws, the application of new disciplines are actually easier to absorb. So many, so many different questions. I'd love to uh, love to talk with you about, but uh, you know, I really appreciate you giving us some time today, Dr. Demartini. It's been fantastic. Uh, just a reminder to everyone listening in: the Breakthrough Experiences is in May, um, uh, the first and second online. DrDemartini.com. Uh, track it down. Highly recommended um, from myself and my partner Shay. Uh, I always ask one question at the end of podcast. Uh, what is the true meaning of wealth to you, Dr. Demartini? Wealth? Well, the etymology of wealth comes from wheel, W-E-A-L, which has the exact same roots as health. Mm. It means well-being. And that there's a correlation between socioeconomic wealth and health. Because as you go up the socioeconomic ladder, your longevity goes up. The fertility mortality rates go down and longevity goes up. If you go to a township in South Africa, the, the lifespan is 48 to 63 years. You go to a more uh, advanced society and it goes up towards the 80s. So health and wealth have always gone together. And that's why they have the same etymological roots, well-being, wellness, health, wealth. If you look up the etymology of wealth, you'll see it refers to health. So you're a healthy mind. Uh, Aristotle called it eudaimonia. And eudaimonia was a form of happiness that wasn't hedonism and immediate gratification. It was a long-term fulfillment, pursuing what is deeply meaningful and doing something that serves equitably other human beings while serving yourself. And that was well-being, wealth. And that's what led to it. If you exaggerate yourself over others, you're going to not meet their needs. If you minimize yourself to others, you're not gonna meet your own needs. But if you balance those and have equity between you and them and equanimity within yourself, you'll meet both their needs and your needs, which creates a sustainable fair exchange that builds wealth. Powerful, the fair exchange. And I do remember that one, it does. So health and wealth is health and a healthy society. Plato's Republic talked about a healthy society based on wealth that way, but not the wealth that we think of, the greed the wealth that's actually well-being. Fantastic. Well, I do appreciate your time today. It has absolutely stretched my, 
my uh, my brain today to talk with you and, and I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as well. Dr. D. Martini, thanks for joining us on the Wealth Faculty Podcast. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for joining us on the Wealth Faculty. Hope you enjoyed. Make sure you subscribe. We're all good podcasts are found. You can find us there. And if you want to watch it, you can subscribe on YouTube, Positive Mentor TV. And until the next episode, take care. Bye for now.